once the Buddha was meditating, sitting on the ground in the woods. And the image I have of him is being rooted on the ground, cross-legged, stable, upright, strong, steady, calm. With a mind that was independent of all things. And elsewhere in that woods, there had come a group of young nobles from the local city. Young husbands and wives came and and they came to have a picnic, to frolic in the woods. And one of the young men, didn't have a wife, brought along a courtesan as his companion. They picnicked, frolicked in the way that noble people do. I don't know what they do. And uh, at some point, they um, all took a nap, siesta. And when they woke up, they found out that all their jewelry had been taken off them and disappeared. And so had the courtesan. So they assumed that she had stolen them. So they set out, wandering around, running around the woods, looking for the courtesan to get their jewels back. And as they're running around, my image, they were frazzled, agitated, running this way and that, besides themselves with fury and anger and desire. They came across the Buddha sitting there. And they said to the Buddha, have you seen a woman? And the Buddha looked at them and said, what would you rather find, a woman or yourself? And they stopped and they sat down to hear what this man had to say. Somehow this idea of finding themselves caught their attention. And I imagine that they knew who they were, at least conventionally they knew. They were nobles nobles in the local town. They had a certain status in a hierarchical society, good status. Some of them were married. capable of having fun, all kinds of things they knew about themselves. But somehow, the conventional way of knowing themselves was not enough. And something about this question, you know, would you rather find your, would you, find, would you want to find yourself? Got their imagination, touched something. And so they sat down to, dis- to find themselves. And it said that, you know, the Buddha then gave teachings to them and uh, their teachings had a tremendous impact on them, and they were changed forever by that. So the idea of finding oneself, and I think uh, not a few people come to meditation 
explicitly or implicitly to find themselves. And it's so easy to not know oneself in any kind of deep way. It's easy to not know oneself at all, to be strangers to oneself. <clears throat> one might know very, very well what one desires, what one hopes. One might know very well what one's supposed to live up to. One might know very well what one doesn't want to be, but maybe one doesn't really, hasn't really found themselves. And it's sometimes a real surprise to sit down and be still and become, and to befriend oneself or to try to befriend oneself, to discover what's in here, what's going on. And there are people who can spend years um, in that process of kind of being surprised in meditation or in a dharmic journey. <clears throat> wow, I didn't know that part of me. I had no idea that that motivated me, that made me click that way. So to find oneself. Now, I think that uh, it's relatively common for people to talk about finding themselves, for some people to interpret that as being discovering who they are in some kind of way. If I really discover who I really am, and then if we discover who I am, and we know this is who I am, then we're safe, we're secure. Hopefully we discover who I am is beautiful, innately good, spiritual, something. And so spiritual teachings that speak to that and say, oh, we're innately good, pure, beautiful, are very inspiring for people who would like to have the security to know that they are innately pure or something. But when the Buddha talked about finding out, discovering ourselves, he did not use language of discovering who we are. And to give you, uh, to convey that to you, there's another story of the Buddha teaching his son. To me, it's a very touching story. I got interested in the story and studied it when my son was seven. And the Buddha, supposedly, as it's, it's, uh, it's come down to us, taught this to his son when his son was seven. What most people don't know is that the Buddha was also a father. And for most of his son's upbringing, he was a primary parent. The Buddha is a parent. So it seems that uh, the young son had lied and was discovered in the process. So the Buddha went to his son, sat down, and in a very kind of, uh, I believe, kind of compassionate way, but very direct way, admonished his son for the lying. And um, one of the things he said in that process, it's a very famous uh, uh, teaching, that uh, for someone who's not ashamed of lying, Someone who's not ashamed of lying is capable of any kind of wrongdoing. It's so fundamental. Someone who's, someone who's not ashamed of lying is capable of any wrongdoing. And then he uh, asked his son, <clears throat> uh, what's the purpose of a mirror? And his son said, a mirror is for reflection. And so... 
the Buddha said, in the same way, your actions through body, speech, and mind are the mirror, are mirrors for yourself. In other words, you study yourself, you study what you do in body, mind, and speech, body, mind, speech. And those actions show you, those those actions that you know yourself. You know yourself through your actions, to what you do, not by what you are. So this is a a very important distinction, maybe not so clear. Not, we don't discover ourselves by what we are here in this, in this tradition. We discover ourselves by what we do, how we act in the world. And in Zen, if you ask uh, some Zen teachers, who are you? They might answer you, would you like a cup of tea? And that's their answer. They add, their answer is an act, is a response, is an engagement. And when that act is over, then you get to discover who you are all over again in the next act. And there's a kind of a continual rediscovery of yourself, of how you respond, how you are in relationship to the world and different causes and conditions. So rather than carrying yourself along as if this is who I am and I can go with me in all these, you know, different situations in a particular way, we become new. We get, in a sense, born anew in each action and we let go of it to the next action. There's certainly some some consistency that goes on, but it's very interesting, this idea of consistency, of personality, of who we are. Uh, I grew up speaking uh, different languages pretty fluently. I'm, I'm Norwegian, so I speak Norwegian and English and grew up speaking Italian, living in Italy. And uh, it's really interesting how in different languages there's a different gill. And in English, you know, I'm a certain gill. It's pretty, you know, it doesn't change that much. But is it essentially who I am? If when I start speaking Norwegian or Italian, that there's a little different different quality to come out, different characteristic, different qu- character almost. It's very hard when I speak Italian not to use my hands. <laughs> In Norwegian, it's hard to use my hands. <laughs> and, um, and I've known people who um, there's one guy in Norway, a friend of mine, who Mostly I spoke English with him. He learned his English on California hippie communes in the 1960s. (laughs) I liked him a lot in English. But when he spoke Norwegian, he grew up in this kind of aristocratic, upper crust kind of Norwegian strata. And I didn't care for him so much (laughs) in Norwegian. Often we take ourselves how we are, sometimes in a fixed way. We don't see how conditioned it is, learned, adapted. And so there are a variety of ways we can get a sense of that. 
learning a different language, can some, for some people, can point that out. Meditation is another way. Sooner or later, it's kind of you start seeing the conditioning because conditioning is the activity of the mind. And as we settle the mind, either the activity settles or you suffer. And so you start seeing what needs to be let go of. So this idea that we find ourselves through our actions is a very important principle. And it ties into another principle, another very strong teaching lineage in Buddhism. And that is that um, the goal is found in the means. The goal is reflected in the means. The goal is, the goal of practice is inherent in the means to the goal, in the practice. So if the goal, you have to define what the goal is. If the goal is to be at peace, the path to peace is, by, is, is being peaceful or not, not you know, giving up conflict and war. Maybe in, maybe in very small steps at first, just a little bit, backing off a little bit or not being so aggressive. <clears throat> that little step of lightening up on self-judgment, painful self-judgment, is a step of little step towards peace. As that stepping into peace becomes bigger and bigger, we grow into the full peace of the Buddha. If the goal is to discover the truth, then the means is to begin being truthful. And we do that in small steps. You know, we try to be the best I can. We can't be honest. And then that builds on itself. And then we grow into truth through these steps of honesty. If the goal is compassion, we can sit and wait for compassionment to happen, compassionment or bust. <clears throat> or we can simply begin the step, small steps of offering compassion to this world and to ourselves, maybe in the smallest little steps or kindness. If you want to be a kind person, practice kindness. If you want to be a generous person, practice generosity. If you want to be a loving person, practice love. Don't leave it to chance or accident or magic. So in this way, we're talking about a path and a goal which are completely intertwined and connected. It's very easy in Buddhism to set up the goal as being some kind of mystical otherworldly kind of dramatic experience that's so other and so completely different from here and now that it's easy kind of to lose, lose sight of the fact that the, the path, the means, the practice should reflect the, the goal, the way of the goal. If the goal is to be free, the means to be free is to let go of clinging the holding, the bonds that hold us. The beauty of this <clears throat> is that then hopefully each step, each little teeny little incremental step of the path is fulfilling in its own right. It's worthwhile in its own right. It's meaningful in its own right. 
we don't know how far we can grow these different qualities, different capacities. But it's wonderful to know that I was honest. I was, did my best to be kind this moment in a small way. We find ourselves through those actions. I've, I've uh, suffered from the idea that I had to be a kind person, thinking that somehow the kindness was inherent and fixed and stable and, you know, and, and then I couldn't find it or I tried to force myself to act a certain way. I've, I've smothered people with <laughs> I remember once many years ago being, being kind to someone. I had the impression that she left me kind of like, <laughs> like I think she probably went home and took a shower. <laughs> you know, it was kind of not very, it was, an, it was kind of like, you know, an act of how I thought I should be. Somehow to confuse identity, to be something, can be very difficult. But I think there's these very small little steps. And you know, I love it that the, uh, the classic way of talking about practice in Buddhism is walking a path, step by step, each step. And to remember that each step, even the smallest little incremental step, remember how does it reflect the goal? So you sit down to meditate. got to get concentrated. I got to get more concentrated than the person next to me. I got to have really good concentration to show those teachers. And I got to do it fast. And this kind of this, 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 you know, this um, busy mind of mine is just getting in the way. Get lost. Stop that. This is terrible. I'm going to pretend it's not there. Those kinds of approaches, I would hope you understand, don't reflect the goal. It's not truthful, it's not kind, it involves a lot of clinging, desire, and it's counterproductive, it doesn't work. But to be humbly and honestly present for what is, oh, here is a busy mind. I can feel this busy mind. I'm present for it. It's painful to have this busy mind. To feel some goodwill or kindness to this painful, exhausted mind. Oh. And here's that thought, that expectation that it should be different. I'm supposed to get concentrated. Here's the embarrassment that I don't have something brilliant to share with the teacher as an interview, a brilliant experience. I knew one, one yogi who saved a meditation experience over several days <laughs> so he could come to a teacher and present what he thought was the right experience. And the teacher saw right through it and said, That's, you t- you're telling me ancient history. <laughs> I'm not interested. Send him off.
So to look and see how is the, <clears throat> is the goal of practice reflected in the means makes it very practical, very immediate, very kind of down-to-earth kind of dharmic path. So we discover ourselves not in who we are, but we discover, in a sense, who, who, if we can use the language of R, we discover, we find ourselves through our activity. And the mind in Buddhism, or as Eugene was talking about last night, he kept calling the mind the heart. And uh, that's often what it's called in Buddhism as well. The mind or the heart is not a thing, but it's an activity or it's a series of activities that work together. And because it's an activity, a process, processes, they can, those processes and activities are malleable, changeable. You're not stuck in one particular way. And that's why practice can work. If, if you were stuck with the mind that you brought to the retreat, and that's it. It's probably not even much purpose to come unless the food is good, which which it is. So, um, but the mind is a process in activity. So we start taking some responsibility for our own minds and how our mind works. In this regard, there's a very important distinction to be made. I think a very helpful one. And that's the distinction between um, any given moment present moment experience, whatever's happening here and now, can be divided into two parts. It can be divided into what is happening and how we're relating to what's happening. What's happening and how we're relating to it. And some people are blinded by what's happening and they don't see how they're relating to it. So I've done that in my practice where I've tried, for example, to get concentrated. And so I was going to latch on to that breath. The what was the breath. The what was some beautiful state of concentration. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to do. I've been doing this stuff for a long time. I'm even a teacher in this tradition. I'll just get myself good and concentrated. So at some point, I start getting a headache. (laughs) And so then I look and say, wait a minute, Gil. What is really going on here? What's going on is that how I was relating to my breath, my practice, my concentration to myself was very greedy very aggressive, full of shoulds and expectations. But because I was doing the practice and I was focusing on my breath, I was like focusing outward and I was kind of blinded and I wasn't turning back to see what was my attitude, what was the approach I had, what was the mood, the flavor of how I am as I'm doing this. So then if I turn around and take that into account and see, oh, I'm kind of tight, I'm pushing, I have this expectation. 
then I, ha then I, have, a, then I have a half a chance of letting go of that or softening around it, not believing it as much. And then as that softens, releases, then uh, sometimes concentration becomes a lot easier. A lot easier to get concentrated if you're not neurotic about it, not anxious about it. It's a lot easier to get concentrated if you don't need to get concentrated. The goal is, re is reflected in the means, which means that how you present yourself in the practice, a step you take, you find the goal there. If the goal is to be steady in the mind, still in the mind, do you offer steadiness in the, at this moment? In the moment that you have to do something, do you offer a relaxed steadiness? It might not last more than a moment, but that's one step. Relaxed, open steadiness. So um, how we relate <clears throat> to what our experience is, and not being blinded by what is, not being blinded by the effort we're making, so we don't notice the attitude and mood that's behind the effort. So um, you'll, save, uh, you'll save yourself a lot of suffering in practice if you step back, turn the, the attention around, and to look at what is that mood, the activity of the mind, what's the beliefs, what's the feeling tone, what's the attitude you have about how you're practicing. Some people practice uh, uh, holding on to the practice as if it's going to save their dear life, which it does sometimes, but you can kind of hold on too tight. And, you know, it's so important. Some people have an attitude of, you know, I'll do it because I'm supposed to, I'm here, the teachers tell me to, but it's never going to work for me. No, no, you know, it doesn't work. This doesn't really, I don't really believe in it, you know, you know I'll try, but, you know. And so there's an attitude, that's to defeat this attitude that's already there, maybe it's invisible feeling that I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. Or there might be an attitude of, um, of um, you know, comparing the present moment experience with something we think is the ideal, and so feeling discouraged. And the discouragement maybe is a little bit invisible to us, we don't notice it, and so we keep trying and trying and trying. But the discouragement is such a heavy weight to be carrying that it's just exhausting to do it. So the Buddha had this great teaching of the two arrows. Buddha asked a group of people, if a man is struck by an arrow, is that painful? And the people said, yes, it's painful to be struck by an arrow. And then he said, well, if that person is struck by a second arrow, is that even more painful? Yeah, two, ar two arrows is more painful than one. And the Buddha continued, the first arrow can be just what life does to you. The second arrow is what you do in response. Can be what you do in response. So if you stub your toe, that's the first arrow. The second arrow is um, a klutz. I'm a terrible klutz. I'm an embarrassment to walking people. <laughs> And I'm so discouraged that I can't quite get this walking right. 
It's a third arrow. And now I'm embarrassed that I'm discouraged. This is the fourth arrow. And I really need therapy, but I can't afford it. I'm just, just you know, <laughs> if only my parents had just set me up better in life and paid for my college education, then I really could have gotten some good, paid enough money to get therapy. And that's the sixth and seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth. And some people live in the 242th arrow. <laughs> generations and generations of arrows building on each other. And we can't necessarily stop the arrows. When an arrow has already struck, it, you know, it struck. But at some point, there's the opportunity to not add another arrow. If you're lucky, it's at the 10th generation. If you're really lucky, it's the ninth. Or maybe, you know, I don't know where you are in your generations of arrows. But it doesn't matter where you are in the generation of arrows, it just matters that at some point you're able to say, ah, I'll leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. I won't build up anything, I won't add anything to that, I won't judge it or criticize or make a big deal out of it, just let it be. In America, where we don't uh, use the metaphor or analogy of arrows so much, um, we use the idea of a hook. I got hooked by something. And it's a very curious, this thing about the, you know, the difference between an arrow and a hook. I wonder about it. Um, because uh, a hook feels more like something you do. I mean, an arrow is something you do. A hook, you don't have to take responsibility for the hook. It's kind of like passive, right? This passive thing that's hanging in there, you know, in your brain. And you don't do anything. You're just kind of like minding your own business. and. Uh, and, uh, you know, and something happens and I mean, you know, someone comes in late and they stomp through the floor here and they're 10 minutes late and they pull off their Velcro jacket and, <laughs> and, then, and then they decide, then they kind of, they're out of wind, you know, out of breath, of course, and, <gasps> and then when that finally stops, you know, then they blow their nose and, and, um, and so, you know, that gets all your hooks. You know, you didn't do, you know, you're responsible. It's just your hooks. They're there, and you didn't, you're just minding your own business. But arrows suggest you know, that you picked something up and shot yourself. Shot yourself. But on the other hand, hooks is good because then we don't, it's also a little bit lighter, it's less personal. There's a great teaching that it isn't we that are disturbed by the sounds. But it's the sounds that are disturbed by us. The sounds are just what they are. Someone coming in late, breathing heavy, just what, what is. And somehow it hits something inside of us. We respond, we react, we meet, it meets ideas, ideals. It frustrates our expectations, our clinging our attachments. And because all those things end up causing more arrows. Take away the hooks, take away the bow and arrow, and the sound can be just be sound passing right through. So what's the attitude? 
what's the hook that might be there even before the sound comes in. There might already be, unbeknownst to you, some idea that I'm, I'm really trying to protect my precious concentration. It's so important to me. And so it's kind of this, it's a setup then for another arrow. So my suggestion here is that to step back on a regular basis, periodic basis, and ask yourself, how am I relating to what's happening right now? Is very, very instructive, very, very helpful, very revealing. And it can reveal where you can make a difference, where you can lighten up, where you can soften a little bit, where you can leave things alone, what you can let go of. And even if you can't do anything about it, I believe that it has some liberating effect just to be very honest about what you see is happening. Your attitude, your response, your mood, all this. So there's a different ways of relating to what's happening. In the realm of thought, of thinking, one way to relate to it is to get involved. And there's a beautiful analogy of this, of um, say you're on the edge of a riverbank, had a nice day, nice hike, nice picnic, resting against the trunk of a nice oak tree, watching the river go by. And along comes a showboat, flashing lights, Great shows, great food, great people, casino. And the next thing you know, you're on the boat. You don't even know how you got there. <laughs> but it's so captivating. You, know, you, stay, you stay there for a few weeks. Like, Wait a minute. Well, I'm not supposed to be on a boat. I was, just, <laughs> I, was, I was just having this nice time resting on the riverbank. So you get back to the riverbank. And then comes along a Navy destroyer. Next thing you know, you're there on board, firing away, everything in sight. How do you get on that one? And then you get back on shore, hang out for a while. The next one comes this really ratty, poor, almost waterlogged raft, barely holding together. No one would ever want to be on that raft. But there you are on it. How'd you get on that one? Flailing, paddling wildly, trying to bail water out, going down quickly. So you go back on the shore. And sooner or later you learn that you don't have to get on the boats. You, you can just let the boats go by. And that's a big thing, just leave things alone. Not even let go, just leave it be. Let it be. Don't get involved. Don't get engaged. You don't, you don't have to get engaged actively with any of your thoughts and ideas and what you're thinking about. You don't have to engage and try to fix and make and do all kinds of stuff with your emotions. Get on the emotion boat. It's a very powerful, very significant act of act to simply to know and see, to watch. 
One of the goals of Buddhism is to be awake. Beautiful goal. And the same way that the said earlier, the means is reflected, the goal is reflected in the means. To simply to know what's here can have a quality of very subtle at first of being awake. Awake is being present, not interfere with what's here, not before or against what's here, clear about what's here, to be awake. Another way of being on the shore is to be like a um, news broadcaster, a news anchor person, jumping up and down the shore. You don't, you don't you stay off the boats. You know better than getting on the boats. Oh, look at that boat out there. That's a terrible boat. Whoever made that boat? They shouldn't let those boats on the water. That's, you know, I know to make better boats better than that. Look at that person, how much she's putting on her plate at lunch. Can you believe that anybody would have that much food on their plate? Or that little? I mean, what that person think? Is she supposed to be like a saint? You're just, you know, barely taking any food at all, you know? Doesn't that person realize there's more people behind this in line? You know, I, you know I'm not, you know, not going to get involved in that person. You know, that person there who's just taking forever to get those peas one at a time out of the bowl. <laughs> there's a lot of self-discovery in the dining room. <laughs> if you haven't discovered that yet, You know, you're probably not mindful. <laughs> so the commentary, all the active commentary and ideas about what's going on out there, that's another way of being on the shore. And some, some commentaries aren't so painful. Some commentaries are, that's a three-masted sailboat, and there's the Genoa, and there's the main sail, and look at that nice pinstripe around the edge. And, you know, just kind of like an engineer, you know, kind of... analyzing every little detail. It's more peaceful. Just lay there and take it all in like a sponge. The mind, awareness, awareness is like a sponge, beautiful sponge. Just watch. Go by and take it in. Be content with what gets absorbed as you're fully present and relaxed and here you are. So is there greed, clinging, attachment in the attitude, in the relationship? Is there aversion or hate in your relationship to what's happening? If there is greed or if there is hate, aversion, those things become the what. Any how can become a what if you notice it and see it. So then how do you relate to the presence of greed? How do you relate to the presence of aversion? What's your attitude towards that? Can you just let it be? Can you be awake? Can you be kind? Can can you be without conflict? Can you be soft? Can you be compassionate? Can you be awake? the simple presence 
of greed or aversion or confusion. It's a very powerful thing to do, just to know. Some people feel like just to know, be mindful, is kind of passive. But, but it's not passive. It's, it's receptive. It's, it's not the conventional way of doing things and building and making things happen. But it's a very powerful activity of the mind to simply know what is. And one of the ways, reasons so powerful is to know, just to know, and leave it just to knowing, means that we're not engaging, fueling, reinforcing, reacting to, caught up in what the experience is. And the common, ordinary mind in daily life is caught up, is, inter- is manipulating, wanting, desiring, trying to make something to happen, fixing, remembering, doing all this stuff. The mind can be exhausted. And just to know puts a stop, or starts, start, uh, uh, begins putting a stop, putting an end to all that incessant engagement and involvement. And that's a very powerful thing to do. If you do it well, it's like pulling the plug out of the bathtub. And all the ways, constructions, and activity, and concerns and, that we have built up over a lifetime all the extra stuff can begin to kind of drain out the drain. Some of us are, are so concerned with trying to fix what ails us. And sometimes it's possible just to get out of the way, stop adding to it, and just let it kind of just, just, just let it be and let it be, be, be known in the openness of the mind, generously, kindly. And because we're not fueling it and engaging it anymore, it begins to just unravel by itself. The self-liberating movement of reality. The self-liberating movement. So to know is a beautiful act, just to know. And to some degree in the course of practice, slowly, slowly we learn not only to know, but we start identifying all the extra things we add to the knowing, the subtle judgments, evaluations, the subtle pulling back or holding on that go on, the subtle ways of losing our balance, And slowly, slowly, the knowing becomes cleaner, emptier, freer, just knowing, more peaceful. When we start looking at how we relate to our experience, the quality, the the attitude or We're looking also at the quality of the mind. Noticing what's the quality of the mind. Is is the quality of the mind characterized by greed or hate or delusion? Is it tight or constricted or is it expansive and open? Is it steady 
concentrated or scattered. And one of the most precious things we have is the quality of our own mind. Those noble nobles at the beginning of the story, they let go of their jewels. They let go of searching for their jewels so they can sit down and listen to what the Buddha had to say. Because I think they had a sense that there was something more precious than their jewels. What are your jewels? What were you willing to put down, stop searching for, to find, or to find something much more, more pre- precious and beautiful? And the suggestion is you'll find it in your own mind, the quality of your mind. So then the last analogy for this talk. I can easily imagine that within a few years, five or 10 years, we'll have a new technology for television where television, this image on television is simply projected onto a window. When the television is off, just a window, clear, translucent. But somehow, when the television's on, the window turns into a television. And it's such an exciting technology that people get all their windows set up that way. (laughs) Saves both floor space and wall space. So imagine you have this wonderful technology and somehow it's a little bit off because it's new. And so you have, you know, this, the image is not coming out right. It's kind of like the old televisions where they are lines and fuzzy. And, and so it takes a while to adjust. You do the adjusting, adjusting. It takes a while to get it all adjusted and balanced and right. And finally you get a beautiful, clear television picture on your window very captivating, lots of great shows to watch. Spend a lifetime watching all the different shows. You forget that there's a world beyond the window. But then you come to Spirit Rock, and we, we sell this very special video, or DVD. You can stick in your DVD player, and, and it um, you know, certainly has shows and stuff, you know, people giving Dharma talks. But then it's programmed in there to have periods of silence. It's even, even programmed in there to have periods of time when, when um, it projects emptiness on your windows. <laughs> <laughs> and lo and behold, it's a window. Clear, you can see right through it. And when you see through a window, a window that really is clear, doing what it needs to do, you kind of forget there's a window there. So in the same way with the mind, the mind first is really agitated. The signal's not coming in very well. 
And so slowly we start getting more stabilized, settled. The mind gets, the image gets clear. It's not so uncommon for people who start getting a little bit settled, steadied in meditation to find that their juices, their mental juices, get kind of going kind of smoother, nicer, creatively. And really beautiful thoughts happen, beautiful ideas, beautiful images and fantasies begin happening. People discover they have within them the great American novel. (laughs) And this is finally, this feels so good, it's so satisfying. For me, on one retreat, three-month retreat, I spent three days designing helicopters (laughs) and a business plan for selling the helicopters. (laughs) And I know nothing about helicopters. (laughs) But, you know, the the signal was coming in very clear. (laughs) And I got on the helicopter boat. But slowly, as we get more settled and, uh, and stop being enchanted, mesmerized by all the images, we start letting go of our preoccupation with them, our concern with them, and they settle down. And slowly, slowly, it fades away, and finally, it's just a window, a clear window. And you're surprised, oh, I didn't know, I'd forgotten. There's a world out there, to see it so clearly. Wow. Is this enlightenment? Some profound person says, what's the color of a window when it's clear? Does it have a color? What's the color of your mind when it's clear? You see this great clarity. But then, you turn the attention around to notice what is it that's watching? What is it that's looking out the window? When all the static desires, aversions, and fantasies fall away, when we're at peace, calm, relaxed, not really thinking about much at all or anything at all, you turn around. If you don't have thoughts to tell you who you are, what do you discover when you turn around and see see what is it that knows? If you turn around to see that which knows, and if it turns out that that too has no color, that too is as clear as a clean window, and you can't see it, or you take the the knowing that's going out, looking out the window, looking at anything, doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be a clear window, but looking at the window, looking at the TV show, and just looking outward. And you take that mind 
take that knowing. Take part of it to go back and look at what is it that knows. And the two meet and cancel each other out. Empty like a clear window. Nothing in a clear wind, that clarity to touch, to feel, to be, to resist, just clarity. Clarity that even disappears itself. Do you disappear? You don't have to wait until all of the image, the television shows, and everything stop on your screen to have some sense of stepping back and finding that beautiful clarity and emptiness that knows it all. There are no hooks back there. No arrows. And it's so hard to not be caught up in the television shows. So hard not to be caught up in our attachments. Our clinging to self and ideas and identities and defensiveness. So hard not to be caught up in our wounds and pains and sufferings, our dreams. So hard not to be caught up in the television shows of great spiritual experiences. Turn the mind around to see it self. It requires letting go of anything you're attached to, all attachments. And that's really the fundamental challenge that Buddhism offers all of us, is how thoroughly can you let go? How completely can you let go? And each moment of letting go or letting be is significant. And as we let go or let be, slowly over time, we grow, we become bigger and grow in that capacity to let go until finally we can let go. Letting go is complete. And then the final thing I'll say is that um, Having let go completely, or something like that, one of the big challenges, with any degree of letting go actually, doesn't have to be a big deal, one of the big challenges all along is to trust 
that that taste, that capacity, that place of letting go, to trust it enough that we can live from it. That we can then, then go back to our life, go back into next sitting, go back into wherever, and trust it's okay not to pick something up, not to get attached again. And our fears, our concerns, our desires, our wants, our expectations, the, the messages we get from society, all kind of encourage us, well, we have to hold on again. We have to pick it up again. And one of the great challenges of this practice of ours is a challenge of a trusting the innate intelligence that arises out of the empty window. amount of mindfulness is ever wasted. Hopefully, hopefully each little step you take, no matter how difficult, will be satisfying for you. I hope you enjoy your practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.